Three former US presidents have been members of one of America's oldest and most secretive collegiate societies. One that's surrounded by rumors and conspiracy theories. Including its involvement with the assassination of JFK, the CIA, and the making of the atomic bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima. Today, we're digging into Yale University's Skull and Bones, or as it's also known, the Brotherhood of Death. And welcome to Sinister Societies, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. Every week, we're going to cover your favorite cults, faith followers, and secret societies. We'll look at some of the biggest cults and secretive societies in history. And how they've managed to run in plain sight and infiltrate your everyday life. Today, we're going to dig into Yale University's Skull and Bones Society, a secretive group that's been around for nearly 200 years. To give you an idea of the influence it has, here are some names attached to Skull and Bones history. Carnegie, Rockefeller, the Bush family, and the Tafts. So, Saruti, before we get into the Skull and Bone Society, which I'm actually quite, I've been quite excited for this one. I can't promise I'm going to do it all with a straight face. (laughs) Not even a a sinister society called the Brotherhood of Death. Not even then, I'm afraid. Not not even then. It's, uh, I'm going to have to pick my words very carefully, but I'm going to start off with uh, pathetic. Anyway, have you seen the film The Skulls came out start of the millennium? No, absolutely not. Well, I can't blame you because it's actually got a 9% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. I do love a film that's got absolutely trash reviews, so I'm surprised I haven't even heard of this one. I mean, you sniff them out, so maybe we'll watch it tonight. Film critic Roger Ebert called it, quote, ludicrous. And apparently this film took inspiration from the Skull and Bone Society. And we've been reading about this group and the word ludicrous and the word pathetic do... uh, it's, It's kind of the only way you can describe the real Skull and Bone Society. Ah yes, the magnificent Trolley Sourbright Crawler, also known as Trollicus Brightolus. The worm's captivating neon colour makes it an easy gummy prey. Trolley! It's a surprisingly sour, invitingly chewy, staggeringly snackable species unlike anything else found on this planet. Eat me! Delicious. Visit trolley.com to shop now. Trolley, eat me! This episode is brought to you by the Weather Channel. The key to solving any mystery? Smart decisions based on the facts. In the case of the weather's effect on your well-being, turn to the Weather Channel app. It clues you in on how weather shapes your mood, health, and productivity with insights built on reliable forecast data to help you thrive. Because mystery belongs in true crime, not weather. Be a force of nature with the Weather Channel app. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Before we dive into the Skull and Bone Society, I just want to get one thing out of the way. And that's the names 
that they give themselves. And this, Hannah, is where the word pathetic immediately springs to mind. Because graduates of the society are called patriarchs. And initiates are known as knights. Oh my god, I can't I can't keep a straight face. And a member of Skull and Bones is also known as a bonesman. And outsiders like us, Hannah, like you and I, dear friend, are known as barbarians. Okay. First things first. How fragile is their masculinity that they feel the need to make sure everyone knows that they're in charge, let alone that they're, you know, they're white, they're white men. Why they feel the need to remind everyone that they are top tier mm-hmm. makes me feel like they're probably not. Yes, I mean, I think you nailed it with the first sentence you said, that it's to do with some glass-like male ego. Mm, and yeah. Um, yeah, it's really like, I don't want to be like that hack-eyed about it and be like, oh, these men, they're so fragile. But I'm like, God, you're doing it yourself. Literally doing it for us. Yeah, you have. It's hard to assess this in any other way. Yeah, it's... Uh, it, you're already... Like, your life is already the easiest it can be on planet Earth. Why do you have to make everyone feel bad at the same time? <laughs> I mean... I think it's just to make themselves feel even better. Barbarians. I mean, my God, my God. Okay, good to know. So we got that out of the way. Now you've got a flavor for this club. Yeah, and it sounds like it's full of mystery um, and intrigue, but let me promise you, my friends, it is not. So let's get into the so-called bonesmen uh, and how they came to be. The group was founded in 1832 on the campus of Yale University by William Huntington Russell and Alfonso Taft, which is a name you will never forget. (laughs) And the name Taft, obviously, rings a bell because he was the father of the 27th president of the US, William Howard Taft, who would later go on to become a bonesman as well, because you inherit this shit, apparently. Mm -hmm. And uh, a little fun fact about William Taft, he was the heavyweight wrestling champion during his time at Yale, which, mm. considering the only people who were getting into Yale at that uh, time were scrawny, rich, white boys, it's probably not that impressive. Well, you know, I would need to see some photographic evidence. But uh, aside from that, well done. At least he achieved something. Good for him. So Russell came from a wealthy family that made its fortune from, of course, none other than the opium trade. And in 2004, the Washington Post reported that Russell got involved with an occult society in Germany. And this is apparently what inspired him to start Skull and Bones. And Russell and Taft actually rejected the anti-Masonic movement of the era, a movement that opposed secretive societies. So they're very much like, uh, no, fuck that. We really want to have a secret society and we're going to start one and we're going to give it the shittest name we can think of, Skull and Bones. I think, <laughs> I understand, like, humans have always wanted to be in clubs. It's mm-hmm. it's something that people still take advantage of today. We have this, like, innate need to belong and also to feel better than everyone else. So I can understand why things like the Skull and Bones develop, but it doesn't make me like them. No, I don't think... They want you to either. I don't think that's their main aim. They want to be in a secretive society where they can benefit each other. And it can just be a big uh, circle jerk of power. Uh, That's what I'm getting. Yeah. Do you know who it makes me think of? I imagine every single member of the Skull and Bone Society is Milo. Uh Uh-huh. 
Yes. What's his surname? Yanopoulos. Yeah, that guy. The Skull and Bones is like what I would imagine like eight-year-old boys playing pirates would call their club. And I hate it. The Society has other nicknames apart from uh, Skull and Bones and even the Brotherhood of Death. Uh, and these names include The Order. That's better. The Order is better. Um, order 322. Mm, which, that's worse. <laughs> yes, it is worse, but not as bad as the Brotherhood of Death. This is truly, truly mental. I mean, it's just going to get worse. It is. Prepare yourselves. If you're wondering why they use the number 322 when they sometimes call themselves Order 322, the Yale Alumni Magazine we mentioned a moment ago writes that the most popular theory about this is that it was a nod to the Greek orator Demosthenes, who died in 322 BC. Oh my god, I get it, I get it. It's a secret society, so of course it has to be very esoteric, of course it has to be very obscure, like of course it has to be a bit like, you know, a bit wankerish. But my God, it really is the worst, isn't it? It truly is. And I wonder whether half of me is like, oh, well, it was a long time ago. So maybe they were the first to be this much of a wanker. But like, maybe not. Maybe because this is exactly the sort of thing that kids would now would do if they were making a secret society. But like the difference between this one and just like your normal run of the mill, like street urchin is that these guys got loads of fucking money and can do whatever they want. And just in case you want another little fun fact about the Greek orator Demosthenes, he was known for leading an uprising against Alexander the Great. So again, it just shows you um, what these men sort of see themselves as, who they want to connect themselves to. It's always these heroes and these knights, and they always like to position themselves as highly as they possibly can. Yes, um, because their dads don't love them and they never will. (laughs) So the building that the society meets in also has its own name. It's called the tomb. And it's a mostly windowless building that's been described as, quote, bare and imposing, probably just like their father's love for them. (laughs) Yeah. So if you were uh, wondering why I was saying that it isn't awful of mystique and intrigue, this is why. Inside the so-called tomb, there are dozens of skeletons and skulls, both human and animal, and reportedly there's a coffin in there as well. There's also medieval armor, statuettes of Demosthenes, and moose heads, because why not? They're a big fan of images of death. Uh, they've got coffins, skulls, skeletons, and as well as this, they are all given new names when they join the society, reportedly tied into the idea of rebirth. Oh, interesting. I feel like I've got theory about this, that it's definitely okay. to do with rebirth. And this isn't particularly, I'm sure, a very unique or original theory, but I was just thinking about it when you were saying it. I think it's probably to do with that rebirth and coming into this secret society, blah, blah, blah. And now you're a different person when you're in here. But I also wonder if it is kind of that um, that fantasy role play. So if you're in here using a different name, then you can go a bit further every time with the crazy stuff you're doing or the crazy stuff you're saying, because it's not really kind of you. And you've got that separation between the reality of who you are and this alter ego of who you get to pretend to be when you're in the tomb. Oh, yeah, totally. I think uh, people like secret identities. And it's also like, it's not a phase, mom. Like, I'm, I'm at university now. Um, so I can be moose ears if I want. And if you think the tomb sounds uh, inviting or scary or whatever, um, it's been described in a lot of ways. A former Bonesman described it as, quote, the sort of gothic mansion Batman's Bruce Wayne would have lived in. How is it a gothic mansion if it's got no windows? Uh, yeah, I think it is all uh, pomp and circumstance because 
a conservator who spent time restoring paintings to hang in the tomb, described the building as, quote, sort of like the Adams family. It's campy in the old British men's smoking club way. It's not glamorous by any means, which is exactly what I envision it to be. Yes. I mean, I wouldn't imagine these men having a particular interior design nuance, I would say. So I can imagine it's not looking the best. No, and just like there's only so many animal skeletons you can have before they lose their impact, I think. And it's not like you can just be like, hey, guys, I think we need a refresh. I think we need a redesign. It's all getting a bit, uh, you know, old fashioned in here. You can't just bring an interior designer into your secret club and have them do it up. So unless you're going to do the work, I guess the work's just not getting done. No. They don't strike me as the hands on type, the DIY type. It's not even that really for me. I think it's more like they've obviously made an effort to make it like really threatening and Mm -hmm. imposing, but actually it just looks like a bit rubbish. Yeah, I can imagine. So for many years, Skull and Bones was historically an all white boys club. Surprise, surprise. Specifically, the white boys that were joining were of the waspy kind. And just in case you don't know what that means, it means white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. I learned that from Sex in the City. Many a moon ago. I can't remember where I learned, but I, no, less recently than is appropriate. I didn't know for ages what it meant. I just thought it meant um, women with small waists. <laughs> like a wasp. <laughs> well, there you go. I, I can imagine that there is an overlap between those two. And it was only in the 1930s, 130 years after the club was formed, that the Skull and Bone Society got its first ever Jewish member. And in 1965, the first black man was initiated into the society. But it wasn't until 1992 when women were finally allowed to be members of the society. There had been previous efforts to allow women to join, both in 1971 and 1986, but they were shut down unanimously by alumni committees. In 2013, the Atlantic magazine spoke with a former Bonesman about why so many men in this society didn't want women to join. I think I can take a a good guess. And they said, quote, there were rituals that some women would find offensive. Some wanted to fight to make sure those traditions didn't have to change. Coming up, we'll dig into the Skull and Bones' more notable alumni and also some of the society's strange traditions. Let's name some of the more recognisable names who have been initiated into Skull and Bones. As we mentioned earlier, there have been Rockefellers and also numerous members of the Bush dynasty, including George H.W. and George W. himself, as well as Prescott Bush, the father of George H.W. So that's three generations of Bushes. Former Secretary of State John Kerry and the actor Paul Giamatti, who you may recognize from Sideways, Fred Claus, Cinderella Man and the TV show Billions. In 2004, John Kerry and George W. made history by becoming the first two Bonesmen to face each other in a presidential election. Hmm. When Bush was asked about his affiliation with the society, he said, quote, It's so secret we can't talk about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Quite the orator, wasn't he? 
So if you consider that there are only uh, about 800 living bonesmen at any one particular time, the fact that they were influential enough to be taking both spots in the presidential race. I mean, that tells you everything you need to know. During his time in the White House, George W. Bush nominated at least 10 bonesmen into prominent positions. And it's even alleged that he held small skull and bones meetings at the Oval Office and at Camp David. So if you think that, like, this isn't important stuff, like, it's just like a little silly boys club. Like, yes, it absolutely is. But it's a little silly boys club that will set you up for life and get you into the fucking Oval Office. It's exactly what you were saying. It's very nepotistic and it's very um, disturbing in many ways, as much as we want to laugh at them, because... Because power has been concentrated within such a small group. If you're saying only 800 bonesmen are alive at any one point, and then one of them happens to become the president of the United States, then all of the others are elevated by that. And they all get to take our positions of prominence, power, <laughs> all of the above. And, uh, you know, that's all happening secretly. You know, the, the electorate doesn't know that. And it's happening behind the scenes, behind closed doors. And uh, that's pretty scary stuff, actually. It's incredibly scary, and we can actually name some of the appointees that came up through this particular skull and bones uh, slippery ladder. Edward McNally, who became the general counsel for Homeland Security, and Robert McCallum, who was named assistant attorney general. So they're not they're not bullshit jobs. They're that's big boy stuff. Yeah, and I would say that's probably actually a rarity. The ones that want to come out and be in public facing roles like that. The others, if I were one of them. I'd want to be behind the fucking scenes. I wouldn't want you to know who I was. I'd want Mm. to be there doing influence peddling without any of the glare of the media on me. I wouldn't want to be in the public eye because you can't do nefarious shit. Well, you can. You can do more nefarious shit from behind the scenes, is my theory. So let's get into some of the society's uh, traditions. Bonesmen have to take, of course, an oath of secrecy. They meet twice a week and one night is set aside for debating political and cultural events, and the other night is set aside for members to talk about their private lives. Two nights a week is a commitment. Mm-hmm. But if it's going to make me president of the United States at the other side, I'd be like, okay, fine, let's do it. So, uh, as we alluded to earlier, all Bonesmen are given secret names when they join. Some are original and some are traditional, and others are inspired by literature. So there's been a Thor an Odin, a Hamlet. I like Thor and Odin, I kind of understand from a toxic masculinity point of view because they're very strong characters. Hamlet's a fucking wuss. Like, why would you pick Hamlet to be your scary skull and bones name? That's ridiculous. (laughs) And also we've got, this one is, is stronger than Hamlet. Long Devil apparently is given to the tallest member of the society. Mm. William Howard Taft and George H.W. Bush were both known as Magog, prepare to vomit, my friends, because Magog is a name traditionally given to bonesmen who have had the most sexual experience. Oh, God. Let's continue on. (laughs) So in its early days, the initiation ceremony for Skull and Bones included being stripped, beaten, and forced to lie in a coffin. Sure. Cool. Today, however, it's a little bit less extreme, or at least it's thought to be a little bit less extreme. It's been reported that members drink a blood-like substance, thought to be something innocuous like Kool-Aid, but they have to drink it from a skull called Yorick. And of course, just in case you don't know who Yorick is, he is, of course, the dead court jester in Hamlet, whose skull is pulled out of the ground by a gravedigger. Alas, poor Yorick, I knew him well. 
I'm giving them literally no um, originality points for calling their skull Yorick. No! Literally every skull is called Yorick. Try harder. And new members also reportedly have to recount their sexual histories for 15 minutes in front of the society, which is supposed to help with the bonding experience. I can't cope. <laughs> Somebody help me. I want to go home. So, bonesmen are advised to not leave or enter the tomb when, quote, us barbarians are around. And if they happen to see non-members when they are near the tomb, they're told not to make eye contact with them. That will definitely mean that they don't see you. That's how it works. I mean, sure. Just mm -hmm. stay really still and they yeah. can't see you. If I can't see you, you can't see me. Don't worry about it. Ignore this tomb. Up next, we'll get into some of the rumours and conspiracy theories surrounding the Skull and Bones, including its connections to the CIA. So, as we mentioned earlier, George H.W.'s father was also a bonesman, good old Prescott Bush. Well, law has it that during World War I, Prescott, along with a few other bonesmen, are rumoured to have stolen the skull of the Apache leader, Geronimo, the last native leader to formally surrender to the United States military in 1886. Geronimo died in 1909, having spent 20 years as a prisoner of war at Fort Sill in Oklahoma. Geronimo is a cool guy. Like, mm -hmm. if you have 10 minutes, go and give it a quick Google. I would venture that it's a better use of your time than researching Skull and Bones. <laughs> go read about Geronimo, what a badass he is. Even though it's mostly assumed that it's not Geronimo's skull, a letter found in Yale's library. The letter was written in 1918 and claims that the skull did belong to the Apache. Although historians still believe that it isn't Geronimo's because he was buried in an unmarked grave. But we do have to say that bonesmen of this era were well known for stealing valuable items that they would then hide in their quote-unquote tomb. I don't think moral reasons would be the reason that it isn't Geronimo's skull. I think if it isn't Geronimo's skull, it's just because they didn't know where it was and they thought it'd be cool to say it was. But I can also believe a bunch of historians that are maybe linked to the Skull and Bones Society would say that it's not just to not make them look like giant assholes. I mean, whether it's Geronimo's skull or not, it's not making me like them. It's someone's skull. Exactly. It's kind of irrelevant whose it is. So, um, yeah, that's really, really grim. And in addition to Geronimo's skull, the society is also rumoured to be in possession of the skulls of Martin Van Buren, the eighth US president, as well as a Mexican revolutionary, Pancho Villa. But, again, this is likely untrue. However, former Bonesmen have said that there is a skull in a glass case that they call Geronimo. In 2001, journalist Ron Rosenbaum was researching the society for a story that he was writing for the New York Observer. He was spying on the tomb one night and managed to catch an alleged initiation ceremony on video. The camera footage shows initiates kissing skulls and acting out murder scenes and chants of Kiss the skull can be heard. Oh, for God's sake. And the bonesmen are seen wearing cloaks and togas, as if it couldn't get more pathetic. Um, yeah, uh, I, I don't, honestly, I have no idea what to even say. I want to see that video. I would love to see that video, for God's sake. I mean, 
kiss the skull oh they're so they're just so cringe maybe this is just what happens though it's like when you are so powerful and wealthy and rich you just have that level of like affluenza you're just bored by everything so let's just do the most fucking weird shit we can and be less bored so let's get into a few of the conspiracy theories behind the secret society one theory is that the skull and bones controls u.s state intelligence and this theory comes about for several reasons and one of those is the fact that bonesman robert lovett helped create the central intelligence agency which is of course the cia And over the years, numerous bonesmen have joined the agency, including George H.W., who headed the CIA for a short period from 1976 until 1977. And bonesman James Angleton was chief of counterintelligence at the CIA for about 20 years. Interestingly, he was fired from the agency because he oversaw a mission that involved spying on Americans who were involved in anti-war and black nationalist movements. Oh, the CIA loves spying on the Americans. It must be odd. So obviously George H.W. and then George W. Um, but it must be a, a weird feeling having all of these hypersexual initiation ceremonies and then being like, oh, my dad did this. <laughs> and now he knows that I've done it too. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you're right. That's horrible. And also just like quickly come back to the CIA and all of this weird shit, like these togas, kiss the skull, blah, blah, blah. And then you know that these people go into government, high power positions in the government and in things like the CIA. Then how can you blame people for having crazy conspiracy theories about things that they're like, we don't trust the government? No, of course not. As if it wasn't weird enough, we're going to get weirder. Here is another one. It's also been said that Bonesman may have encouraged Lee Harvey Oswald to murder President John F. Kennedy. Go on, Lee. Yeah, go, go on. on. We know go you really, on. really love communism, but we're just, oh, we'll give you a, a kick in the right direction. And a grassy knoll to stand on. Some theorists have found connections to Oswald and members of Skull and Bones. They say the motive could have been in retaliation to Kennedy's progressive politics that may have affected the wealthy elite which, of course, was the makeup of the society at the time, and I would warrant now. So another conspiracy floating around is that members of the society were behind the atomic bomb drop on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. People have theorized this because former bonesman Henry Stimson was Secretary of War from 1940 until 1945, and he actually oversaw the Manhattan Project, which, of course, developed the nuclear bomb. It feels like, yeah, it... Of course, they're involved in everything. But like, is that a surprise? No, not really. There are also people who believe the society is seeking worldwide domination, in part because of the powerful positions Bonesmen have held within society. This is the thing, like saying like seeking worldwide domination. They've kind of got it already. They've got it. What else could it be? I think they're they're already in charge. They really are. But as we've said, even though Saru is speaking very convincingly, uh, these are just conspiracy theories. <laughs> if they've piqued your interest, then maybe uh, spend some time going down a deep, dark internet hole to find out some more. And finally, we've realised we've spent a lot of time on this episode talking about problematic white guys, but we should mention that Skull and Bones does seem to be changing. In the year 2000, writer Franklin Four wrote in The New Republic that, quote, the current crop of Bones persons <laughs> contain vows of secrecy because they are genuinely embarrassed by their affiliation. 
as well they should be. So there you go. That is a skull and bone society. Can you give me two takeaways, two things that we've learned this week on Sinister Societies? Two takeaways that I have learned is that I would be suspicious of dating a man that was in a secret society. And secondly, if I don't want people to see me doing something, just not to make eye contact with them. I mean, I think that is that is the major lesson that we've learned mm-hmm. is that if you can't see them, they can't see you. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. And we'll be back next week with another great episode. Remember to follow Sinister Societies on Spotify to get a brand new episode every single week. You can listen to this and all other episodes of Sinister Societies for free exclusively on Spotify. And if you like this show, be sure to follow at Parcast on Facebook and Instagram and at Parcast Network on Twitter. And if you like us, you might want to come over and listen to our other podcast, Red Handed, which is a weekly true crime podcast where we cover all manner of serial killers, cults, macabre shit, anything that takes our fancy. So if that sounds like it might be up your street, head on over and check out Red Handed wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll be there forever. We'll never leave. Sinister Societies is executive produced by Max Cutler and is a Spotify original from Podcast. It's produced by Kristen Acevedo and Gemma Waters. Sound design by Kristen Acevedo with associate sound design by Jamie Ryan. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro. Research by Chelsea Wood. And fact-checking by Cara McCurlin. And we're your hosts, Hannah Maguire and Saruti Bala.